Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today we'll be speaking with Frank Palachek about the use of activated charcoal in patients with toxic congestion. Dr. Frank Palachek, PharmD, is a clinical professor and director of the PGY-1 Pharmacy Residency at the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, diplomat of the American Board of Applied Toxicology, and the co-author of the Poisoning and Toxicology Handbook. He currently practices as an attending with the Toxicon Consortium, providing clinical services and toxicology training in the state of Illinois. Dr. Palachek, before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? No, I have no disclosures to share. Perfect. So as I mentioned, we're going to focus our time here on the topic of using activated charcoal. So I think for those who are less familiar with it, why don't we just start with the basics of what exactly is activated charcoal and how does it work for a patient with a toxic congestion? So charcoal is uh, organic material that is uh, burned and then treated under high pressure oxidizing agents like steam or acids, carbon dioxide, in order to create an extremely fine powder with an enormous uh, surface area capable of adsorbing uh, small molecules. Typically, a gram of activated charcoal can have anywhere from 1,500 square meters of surface area to as high as 3,600 square meters. So what you're saying is that it's not just charcoal that they've kind of activated the, the particles themselves to be able to improve the surface area of the product then. Yes, and in that way they can allow for weak, non-ionic, physical chemical binding to occur between charcoal and small molecules so that these things uh, in binding to the charcoal are then prevented from being absorbed across mucous membranes. So then logically, if someone takes a toxic ingestion, hopefully that activated charcoal will bind up and prevent any absorption. Is that the main mechanism, or are there any other kind of secondary mechanisms of activated no, charcoal? No, that, that's actually the main mechanism, that it would bind a product and keep it from being absorbed. Although the, the, the minor modification I'd make to that statement is that activated charcoal in the GI tract can also serve as a concentration sink to pull drug that's already been systemically administered or absorbed back into the GI tract or take advantage of it when it's been dumped through the bile or other mechanisms of enterohepatic recycling. Got it. Okay. So I would imagine it might be hard for a patient to ingest a, a powder. So I'm sure it comes as not exactly a powder. How is that actually given to the patient and how do they take it? Well, the easiest way is commercial products are typically charcoal that's been put into an aqueous solution, although it's not really a solution, it's a suspension, and or into um, another solution which typically contains up to as much as 70% uh, sorbitol. The, the liquid would then be consumed as a liquid, although because charcoal is a fine powder and doesn't go into solution, it would require fairly vigorous agitation before administration, and you still pretty much get a slurry of blackish-looking fluid, and then sort of a, a thicker, more molasses or honey-like goop at the end of the of the at the bottom of the bottle. And I would imagine that most patients wouldn't find that very palatable, then, right? Well, uh, anyone who's an adult <laughs> or above the age of six would look at the black liquid and say, I don't think so. It's almost like very, very fine sand. It has a gritty texture to it. You can, you can sense it in the mouth. It's, it's typically it's easier to give 
by having people drink it through a straw, which can clot, so it's got to be a pretty good-sized straw, or a covered cup just to minimize some of the visual discomfort that can occur. Children, on the other hand, little kids just think it's a blast. You <laughs> stick out a black tongue, their face gets black. They tend to be among the, the most uh, compliant consumers of activated charcoal that we have. Got it. Now, I know that you said that, you know, in some preparations it comes with sorbitol. Is that for taste or is there another reason that sorbitol would be provided there? Well, the manufacturers uh, will put it in for two predominant reasons. One is taste. Uh, it makes it sweeter and it's a little bit more palatable for some people that way. The other is that the sorbitol will increase the viscosity of the actual fluid, so the settling of the charcoal is slower. And so once you agitate it, you have a more uniform distribution throughout the entire uh, volume of the product you're administering. So then, you know, if there are products that do have sorbitol and don't have sorbitol, when administering, you know, activated charcoal, is there a preferred option? And can you get into any trouble if you overdo it with one version or the other version? So that's a, that's a really great question because sorbitol is used as a flavoring agent or a viscosity agent and is not being put in for pharmacologic effect, so the manufacturers don't control the actual concentrations in a standardized way from one manufacturer to another. We as pharmacists, on the other hand, would be aware that sorbitol is a pharmacologically active agent. It's an osmotic uh, cathartic, and as such, there have been some very well-described case reports and in case series have, been, have noticed that the use of uh, the varying doses of sorbitol can lead to, if overdone, osmotic cathartic induced diarrhea. And there's been some very prominent medical malpractice suits that have revolved around that. So the preferred dosage form is aqueous solutions of charcoal, although many people, and I, I would include myself in them, are not afraid to have the initial first dose of charcoal when administered to a patient contain an appropriately dosed amount of sorbitol with it. So I would have to be aware of what the concentration of sorbitol is in the product and make sure I'm in the area of somewhere around one and a half grams per kilo of sorbitol, uh, not exceeding that amount in most adults or children. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really important point to emphasize is that historically there have been times where a toxic patient was overdosed on sorbitol and the efforts to treat their initial toxicity, it actually caused toxicity, right? Ab absolutely. And, it, you know, you can even, in fact, I, I mean, a one-time event would be where we had somebody we were treating simultaneously for a toxic ingestion and for hyperkalemia. We were giving small doses of sorbitol with the charcoal, but we were also giving sorbitol with the caxlate that we were using at that time to treat the hyperkalemia, and we gave that patient uh, fluid and electrolyte, pathologic fluid and electrolyte disturbances. Interesting. Okay. So um, as you mentioned, sometimes adults aren't very excited, especially to, to take the product. Is it ever acceptable to add things to the activated charcoal to make it taste better? Uh, okay. So I, you can and it will. My concern is to the extent, how are you doing that? If you want to approach it like you would N-acetylcysteine and dilute it substantially with some kind of soda or fresca or, or a fruit-flavored punch of some type, as you increase the volume that you have this surface area of charcoal, you're actually decreasing the effectiveness of the charcoal itself. Charcoal relies on the law of mass action. A lot of particles in a small, confined space, the more fluid you put it in, the less interactions it's going to have with the toxins you're trying to bind. So it's very implicitly understood 
from the studies when people tried to do whole bowel irrigation and charcoal at the same time. Neither one of them worked any better than they did all by themselves because you were diluting out all the charcoal with all the liters of polyethylene glycol that you were using. Okay, so what you're saying is that if you were to add anything, it should be in the smallest volume possible to make it as concentrated a product of activated charcoal as you can get. That would work for me, although I, I, I typically don't find a terrible need to do that. Got it. Okay. So at this point, we've, we've discussed how it works. Does activated charcoal work for all toxic congestions, or are there certain times where we know it works better than others? So a really good question. If you were to pick up a textbook, like including mine, it would say that charcoal works for some very specific chemicals, typically small molecular weight compounds that are capable of weak non-ionic Van der Waals type binding, and does not work for things like um, ions, does not work for like potassium or sodium, does not work for acids, does not work for alkalized hydrogen ion, does not work for the alcohols or, or metals would be another one, I, you know, ionized metals. Now, I'm going to take a step back and say if I want to be scientifically pure, it will bind small amounts of those particles because they're always present in some form of, of ionized species and a salt. And I can bind the salts. The, the problem is for some of these things, A, uh, they tend to, in the stomach, many of my metals are going to be more ionized than not, and there just isn't that much unionized species to bind. Or things like the alcohols are so rapidly absorbed, or when I ingest a drug in a liquid, it's already in solution, it's so rapidly absorbed, it can make it difficult for charcoal to prevent absorption because it's being administered so much later. So then with that principle in mind, um, you mentioned the toxic alcohols. What are, let's say, the top three or four toxic congestions that you see um, that are just not r typically amenable for activated charcoal? Okay, so the toxic alcohols would clearly be one, and and they're the, the shining example of a liquid solution that charcoal just won't have an opportunity to be very helpful for. A second one would be any kind of acid or alkali ingestion, and in that realm, my concern is not even so much a fact of it's probably not going to bind very much, but we are going to want to be able to scope those patients to determine the extent of corrosive damage that they've incurred. And if the whole GI tract is full of black and I cover the lens of my scope with black, because that's what it'll do, uh, it'll adhere to the, to the lens, I won't be able to see anything. So there it's, it's not so much that it doesn't work the bind, which it doesn't, but I also don't want to lose my ability to visualize the GI tract. And and a third would be metals. It really just is not particularly effective with metals. As long as I'm going to bring up things like lack of visualization, I would probably add one more minor caveat to the use of uh, charcoal, and that is we often weigh its risk benefits against the toxin I'm trying to bind, but charcoal's not smart. It can't see what it's binding. And if I'm trying to treat what looks like a, a, a moderate, not-so-good phenytoin overdose in a patient with a real bad seizure history who's also on two or three other anticonvulsants, and those convulsants are present in relatively low concentrations, I might lower my phenytoin, but at the same time I'm lowering the, the carbamazepine and the valproate, and suddenly I have a seizing patient because I took away too much anticonvulsant, not just phenytoin. So I'm a little nervous when I'm using certain maintenance meds are present in a patient and whether I can afford to use charcoal there or not. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I know at least in the, the critical care literature, especially prior to 
adiricizumab, which is the reversal agent for dabigatrine. The use of activated charcoal for these direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs was very uh, a very hot topic. Yeah, I, I, you know, it would work. <laughs> I, but the the fact of the matter remains there's two there's two issues there. One in my mind, there's two issues there. I'm not a, I'm not an overwhelming proponent of using charcoal in that setting, uh, as much as I love to use charcoal. The first is that anticoagulants in and of themselves, outside of neonates, aren't directly toxic. They're indirect toxins, and that if there's some form of trauma, then I'm at risk. So the shorter acting the anticoagulant, or what, regardless of which one it is, the much less likely I'll ever use charcoal because it'll wear off and I don't even have to try and use the charcoal. The second thing, if I'm involved with chronic oral anticoagulant therapy, charcoal doesn't leave the GI tract right away. And many of my oral anticoagulants I give in very small doses. And I can actually suffer two, three, my personal experience, a case report, an N of one, not even published, five days of impaired oral absorption of an oral anticoagulant because I had given a couple of doses of charcoal to treat an excess of it. And I'm not sure that I want to waste the time having to use bridging mechanisms in that setting. So uh, it works scientifically, but clinically, I personally, at this time at least, I'm a little nervous about doing it. I don't go out of my way to recommend it. Okay. So then if you had to pick three toxic overdoses that as long as the patient met some of the criteria we'll talk about, what are the top three best uh, evidence your go-tos for giving activated charcoal for? Uh, well, number one for me, by far and away, is aspirin. And and that's despite aspirin violates a lot of the, quote, rules that we have for using charcoal. But I, I am very uh, fond of using it in that setting, and I'm very fond of using multiple doses of that setting, and we will... We can talk about why. A second thing I'm fond of, if I have any kind of a reliable history involving a cellular poison, colchicine, someone grinds up ricin. We just had a case this past week of a person who bought two dinitrophene all over the Internet for a suicide attempt. In any setting where I am dealing with an oral cellular poison for which I have no supportive care other than hoping they did not ingest a lethal dose, I will use charcoal as my preferred oral decontamination because it doesn't just work in the stomach. It works throughout the GI tract as it passes along. And then, boy, a third, there's a whole clump of ones at the third, Sean. I wouldn't pick a third one that I would go out of my way to say it has to be this one. Okay, fair enough. Well, in terms of giving the activated charcoal, we talked about sorbitol and how we have to be concerned about the sorbitol concentration and the dose the patient actually receives. But what about the activated charcoal dose itself? As I understand it, there's some controversy about how you're actually supposed to dose the antidote of activated charcoal. There's a, there's a lot of controversy. A lot of it stems from a significant misinterpretation of a sentence in the conclusion of a a review article of in vitro trials looking at how well charcoal works. And that paper in the discussion by a Peter Nuvonen in uh, 1982, he stated that the ideal ratio of charcoal to toxin is 10 grams of charcoal to 1 gram of toxin for maximizing adsorptive, the adsorptive capacity of charcoal, and that going past that achieved no additional benefit. And for some drugs, a little lower, some drugs a little higher, but 10 to 1 was good. And then, you know, ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. And in most adult overdoses, that can be achieved with a 1 gram per kilo dose of charcoal. So we have this sentence in a review article summarizing 30, 40, 50 studies 
in vitro studies. And two things are in that sentence. One says 10 to 1 ratio, and the other says 1 gram per kilo. People use both. Most textbooks say to use a gram per kilo. I'm going to start with the gram per kilo. There's a significant and major flaw with the gram per kilo approach. One is that we're not dosing charcoal to be absorbed into the human body. I'm putting it into the GI tract, a tube. It's staying in the tube, the GI tract, and it's eliminated from the, the tube as stool, and with it should go toxin. So the amount of flesh that surrounds that tube should in no way, shape, or form actually influence the dose of charcoal that I'm giving. But if I fall back on the 10 to 1 ratio, I'm stuck with I don't really know how much they took. I can't rely on their history. I can't rely on, besides the charcoal, what other things in the tablet or the capsule that they swallowed, what other chemicals are there, like the preservatives and the coloring agents, that it could also, albeit small, it might also bind. And since I don't know the amount to give often on it to do my 10 to 1, and I don't want to use the patient weight very much, what are we left with? And and I am another proponent in my group that I work with, the Toxicon group here at Chicago. We tend to approach this in, a, in, a, in another way. And other, there are other toxicology centers that take the same approach. One, we recognize off very poor data that the maximum tolerated dose of charcoal in humans because of fluid volume is around 100 grams because that typically is going to be in the area of 16 ounces of liquid that they're being asked to drink or administer in an NG tube relatively quickly. And if it's got sorbitol, that's a lot of fluid with even with a hyperosmolar agent in it. And you want to be careful with a moderately irritated GI tract to not, you know, think about full feed, full osmolarity tube feeds. You just don't start with that. So I don't, we don't like to go over 100 grams. And so if I'm dealing with a serious ingestion and I really think charcoal belongs like I do for aspirin, I would always start with 100 grams. And 100 grams of charcoal at a 10 to 1 ratio binds 10 grams of aspirin, which really is not a whole lot of aspirin necessarily. That's 20 tablets of 500s, which means it's only a fifth of a 100-count bottle. So I realize that my effectiveness of my charcoal is somewhat limited by the amount that I can give for how much I'm trying to bind sometimes. If I want to minimize I'm not sure I want to use it, but I still want to use an effective dose. You can go a gram per kilo, or most people will just go with a 50-gram dose, period. In children, 15 grams, 25 grams. You know what? I'm going to say something horribly unscientific. A lot of us just like to dose by the bottle. I'll use a bottle size, a single bottle size in a child of 2 to 6. If my bottle comes in in 15 grams, I use a 15. If it comes in a 25, I use the 25. And the reason for putting the dosing in a bottle-type thought process by bottles of charcoal is because remember how I described the charcoal. A black slurry of water and then this goop. It's really hard to measure out specific grams of charcoal. And I, I consider it impossible. And I spent way too much time as a junior clinician trying to be specific and wrecking glassware that took forever to clean, trying to come up with 87 grams. I don't bother. I just think you should dose in bottle sizes, look in your cabinet, have your nurse tell you, have your pharmacist tell you, what size bottles do we have, and then dose up to 100 grams. If that's three bottles of 30 and you have 90, go with 90. 
So just to kind of highlight a couple of those factoids, which I think are excellent. You know, historically, it sounds like there were kind of two proposed mechanisms, a 10 to 1 ratio of activated charcoal to drug or a weight-based dose of one gram per kilogram. And in both cases, we don't have great data in terms of supporting that. On top of that, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of drug, activated charcoal, is left in the cup. So even if you think you're giving the patient 100 grams, they're probably not getting the full dose because some of it's left in the bottom. So kind of your approach then is saying, you know what, for adults, we'll give up to 100 grams. For pediatrics, we'll give one or two bottles worth. And accepting the fact that we don't have great data and accepting kind of the nuances of it um, is probably a a fairly realistic approach as opposed to being very scientific and giving 41 grams of active charcoal seems kind of silly, right? Absolutely. I think you said that very well. Perfect. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the timing of activated charcoal. Clearly, if we're trying to get the drug before it gets absorbed, there's a time component of how efficacious it's going to be. And clearly, it depends on the drug that we're trying to adsorb as well. But what can you tell me about the timing itself? Well, there's a very common misconception that I hear these days, which is charcoal only works within one hour of ingestion. So I'm going to kind of come back. But you go way, way back in time to the late 70s, early 80s, when a lot of the charcoal, when charcoal was first really being pushed hard as a decontamination method. And there was a number of normal volunteer studies done then where charcoal was given at the same time as a sample ingestion, something safe like ampicillin, or given like within five minutes, or given at an hour, or two hours, or four hours. And it was compared to uh, having people uh, inducing emesis with Ipecac, or dropping an NG tube and doing lavage. And a a gross average, a gross summarization of that data would be is that if you give charcoal within five minutes of of an ingested compound, you can adsorb a mean of about 40% of that dose. There are studies that have shown up to 80%, 90% being absorbed. But when you kind of put them all together, probably 40% was a nice number to state. And, And that was twice as good as you got with Ipecac or that you got with lavage. If you waited an hour, it would drop down to 20%. You you waited past four hours. It was considered clinically insignificant, although people oftentimes wouldn't say what what was going on. Now, that's a long time ago, and those were with the original charcoal products and not some of the more super activated with bigger surface areas. And people have gone back and looked at it again, and there's two major issues. One, the original data, nobody at that time was given sustained release dosage forms to see what impact charcoal given at what time had on those products because we didn't have sustained release dosage forms when we first did these studies. And the, even the modern guidelines that talk about the use of charcoal and decontamination, the most recent guidelines by the American um, Academy of Clinical Toxicology, by ACMT, by the American Association of Poison Control Centers, admit or state a caveat is that none of their guidelines reflect data on the ingestion of sustained release dosage forms because they haven't been studied. So one is, don't we have dosage forms these days that absorption does not take place in 5 to 15 minutes. It takes place over hours, and charcoal could be given hours later and prevent absorption of those drugs. Second thing there that would be going on there is there have been studies that have been done with things like acetaminophen and some of the newer oral anticoagulants where actually charcoal can prevent absorption of the drug up to four to six hours after it's been ingested. So given we don't always know the dose and given we don't always know the time, if you think that there would be a benefit to preventing the absorption of the drug of a patient, 
Uh, I personally don't worry so much about exactly what time it is we have by history or a patient's mouth in terms of their oral history as to whether or not I'm using charcoal. If I have an aspirin overdose and they come in, if they're capable of ingesting an oral uh, fluid, I'm going to give them charcoal. Okay. I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of that data was also done in non-tax healthy volunteers. Um, and it, certainly if you had a toxic overdose where someone took something that would reduce the GI transit time or um, they had a, a basor form or anything like that, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, it's hard to extrapolate healthy people to a tax patient. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's completely true. And uh, and the bezoar that you mentioned, that is why I am so aggressive with aspirin and charcoal particularly because aspirin is a notorious compound for forming undissolved masses uh, throughout the GI tract that result in prolonged concentration over the course of days, literally days, yes. So then is that your main reason for, you mentioned it a couple of times, the use of activated charcoal specifically in aspirin overdose, or are there other kind of benefits that activated charcoal brings to the table with an aspirin overdose? Sure. Well, there's so a couple. One is that uh, aspirin commonly causes bezoars. Two, it binds aspirin really, really well. Third, aspirin is a, it's, it's a very weak drug. Remember, our effective doses are 325 milligrams or 500 milligrams or 600 milligrams. And, and even one aspirin tablet of 650 milligrams would require six, six grams of charcoal to bind it. Just do the simple math. So a major ingestion a single conventional maximally tolerated dose of charcoal is not particularly effective at removing the bulk of the toxin I'm trying to. So I'm just hoping over time to bind it all up. And a third is for many of us, the treatment of choice that we are going to end up falling back on, particularly when you're talking about critical care practitioners who are getting aspirin overdoses that warrant admission to an ICU. We are trying to get to dialysis and the onset time to getting emergent hemodialysis throughout this country is so varied. Uh, it's it, it, Within my own institution, it's a minimum of six hours. And to do nothing for six hours with an aspirin is a waste. And so I think people have always thought about charcoal as a, I do charcoal or I do something else. I think charcoal should actually, let's take a page from the anticoagulant population. Let's think of it as a bridge. I'm bridging to my dialysis if I'm going to need dialysis. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And thinking about the simple fact that aspirin overdose is potentially deadly as well, you know, in terms of the risk benefit, things like that, I think it makes a lot of sense. So um, in terms of the clinical benefits, uh, we'll conclude with some of the arguments of pros and cons of activated charcoal. But to kind of start that off, what kind of clinical data do we have indicating the actual efficacy of charcoal for changing a clinical outcome of a patient? Not kinetic studies, but actual clinical data that we have. Almost none. And very and, and in the modern era, none that supports that there's clinical outcome. And let's but there are some significant caveats to just letting someone say that sentence and not understanding what it's based on. One, many of the charcoal studies that have been done have been done in normal volunteers. The large patient trials that do exist, very few are actually large enough to detect a difference. None of these papers have ever really done a significant, um, a a well-performed or discussed sample size calculation to determine why they went with the sample. It's very hard to collect poisonings. They're not that common. And to give you a sense, on average, there's almost 3 million phone calls a year 
in the United States to poison centers. Of those 3 million phone calls, about 1,500 to 2,000 a year result in death. That's an extremely low mortality. And if you were to try and do a sample size calculation on that, you'd need to do a trial that has at least 75,000 patients in each arm to show charcoal reducing mortality by 25%. If I limit it to adults with serious ingestions that result ultimately in ICU, I'm not going to try and drop mortality. I'll try and drop ventricular arrhythmia, status epilepticus, uh, true respiratory failure. If I try and limit it to the 35,000 or so people that have that, I'm still down to needing about 17,000 patients in each treatment arm. And the largest charcoal paper that has ever been done in unselected overdoses walking in off the streets, about 2,500 patients. So we have a terrible problem with not being able to collect a big enough population fast enough to make it a, a doable study and not having a study big enough to actually state it does not change clinical outcomes. So there's two problems right there. A third, we've never, in these studies, people have never actually controlled for what type of charcoal, what dose of charcoal, what dosing mechanism of charcoal, or did it have or not have sorbitol? There's so many variables that were never addressed other than just saying we gave charcoal and these people got better and these people didn't, that it makes it hard to believe. I just think there's a lot of problems with stating that charcoal doesn't have a clinical benefit. To me, the, the, the key point here is the absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence of effect. Uh, we don't have a big enough study to do that. I'm I'm a little upset about this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're very passionate about it. In terms of the arguments pro and con activated charcoal, if we take the kind of anti-activated charcoal group, clearly one of their arguments is going to be the topic we just discussed about clinical data. I also know that another common argument that comes up is the risk of pneumonitis caused by aspiration of the activated charcoal because emesis happens in these patients. Could you kind of just do a devil's advocate of kind of that viewpoint of the risk of aspiration with activated charcoal? Yeah, no, I, I think that it's legitimate to state that the use of activated charcoal, there have been studies that have been done, and I, I think there's a at least one very good study that it, I would say that their finding of a 1.6% incidence of aspiration pneumonitis in patients given charcoal versus control group in the treatment of poisonings is a hard, strong number that I cannot refute. But people who, anything beyond that is still well below the risk of normal aspiration in any emergency intubation. Uh, it's well below the risks of adverse effects that we have with emergent hemodialysis, which we do in tox patients all the time. And it's also... I think a little bit easy to criticize the poor studies because their definitions for what is aspiration are the patient vomited, which isn't particularly good for me. Okay. So then given you know this definite risk of aspiration, who are really good candidates or who are really bad candidates for use of activated charcoal if that's something that's on our mind as a potential adverse effect of the charcoal? Well, uh, that's going to have to be a clinical decision, Sean. I think, again, I'm going to go with the severity of the ingestion. If I believe I have a cellular poison, if I believe I have a really bad case that is fraught with complications in treatment, including iatrogenic errors like an aspirin overdose, I'm going to use charcoal regardless of the patient's condition on their, on presentation. If I have a drug for which um, I lack supportive care and I'm accepting a patient from a, a small community hospital as a direct admit to my ICU, 
and there it's going to be a couple hours before they walk into my ICU. If I can give them oral charcoal to decontaminate them and serve it as a bridging phenomenon, again, the concept of bridging, I'm going to recommend charcoal in them. I, I, Sean, though, I have to give you a disclaimer. I am extremely pro-charcoal <laughs> and, and represent an extreme position on the topic, and I think your, your listeners should be aware of that also. Well, again, for the listeners' benefit, for just a moment, put a hat on of a, a more moderate charcoal advocate. Sure. Um, for that more moderate person, who would they have severe reservations with giving activated charcoal in because of the risk of emesis and potentially aspiration? Uh, anybody who is significantly altered in status that you are considering, although you have not yet done intubation. Okay. And then for that intubated patient, once they're intubated, is that risk of emesis something that should potentially make them not a charcoal candidate? Again, with your moderate charcoal hat on, um, or is intubation okay where the risk of emesis is a lot lower at that point? I think that the risk of of aspiration is a lot lower once they're intubated, but it's not minimized, and we don't have a trial that we've no one's ever really looked at the difference between intubation and not giving charcoal, intubating and following a charcoal in the treatment of tox patients, and I cannot imagine it to be as safe. Again, you're adding something that can irritate the gut in some manner, and I'm sure that there's a moderately increased risk of vomiting that could lead to aspiration even if you use a cuff tube and do everything else to try and, and can to protect it. So I, I would defer uh, as much as I want to use charcoal all the time, I think that I would defer unless it was one of those agents that we've I've mentioned before that I just I don't care what the status is. I need to get the drug, keep it from getting inside of them. Okay. Well, you know, to kind of wrap up, putting back on your pro-activated charcoal yep. hat, maybe uh, you could leave the listeners with, let's say, three key points that you'd want them to know about activated charcoal whether it's dosing or how it's used or who it should be given in or anything like that, what do you think are the three most critical things to know about activated charcoal? Okay, let's see. So the three three things I would like to leave the listener with that I think are critical facts about charcoal. One is that we tend to dose it improperly because we do not consider what we are trying to achieve and we are focused on some easy-to-remember guidelines that are actually not practical to use. So go with a dose. Pick whatever it is, dose it in bottles, and follow it up. If levels are going up and you have an active GI tract, continue giving charcoal, and, and ideally every one or two hours. If the levels stay the same after you've given charcoal, then there's still absorption going on because it bounds some and keep giving some charcoal. So that would be one. A second thing is charcoal is not smart. Charcoal will obscure GI trauma. Charcoal will bind maintenance medications. And charcoal doesn't know and the GI tract isn't moving. So would you please just make sure that you are addressing the issues of wanting to scope or visualize the GI tract, not reducing more important maintenance meds whose removal would cause greater toxicity than the toxin you're treating, and always keep an eye on general blood pressure and uh, bowel activity. Because when it stops, you just don't want to keep pouring things into it. And the third is that there is no reason to consider time as an absolute limitation to the use of activated charcoal because of the phenomenons that we have these days of sustained release dosage forms, other agents that can delay gastric motility, or the fact that in overdose drugs don't dissolve properly and can be absorbed over much longer periods of time because of undissolved masses. 
Well, Frank, I really appreciate your time. It's clear that you're very passionate about this topic and are well-versed in the literature as well. For the listeners, I wanted to thank you for joining us. This does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have topics or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet your input at SCCM and be sure to use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. So for the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.